Welcome to episode 6 of the LB Podcast for Friday, August 28th, 2020. I'm your host, Chris Markovich. On this week's episode, I speak with disability advocates from Stopgap Ottawa about the shortfalls that folks with disabilities have been facing throughout this pandemic. Plus, I speak with Sophie Jeffros, the co-chair of the Ontario Young New Democrats, about the options currently available to folks with disabilities in Ontario. And later in the show, I welcome Leah Gazan back to the show to talk about her motion in Parliament for a guaranteed livable basic income. So this week we found out that the federal government has announced an extension to the CERB, or CERB, through September 26th. Once those benefits have run out, the federal government will also be providing three different types of support systems. The Canada Recovery Benefit, the Canada Recovery Caregiving Benefit, and the Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit. The first one, the Canada Recovery Benefit, is $400 a week up to 26 weeks and would be available for the self-employed or those that wouldn't be eligible for EI who still need help because their income hasn't returned to pre-pandemic levels. What these new measures don't cover, however, is folks who are on disability, who are receiving disability payments from their provincial governments that are levels less than the old CERB, or $2,000 a month. So what happens to folks on disability that can't get access to medication, groceries, or other services because of COVID. I spoke with some disability advocates to find out more. Joining me now on the show are folks from the ODS Poverty Group and Stopgap Ottawa. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you for having us. So let's first go around the table and do some introductions. Uh, How about you start us off, Kenzie? So my name is Kenzie McCurdy. I'm a social worker. And I, um, in my volunteer time, I coordinate uh, Stopgap Ottawa, which is um, a sort of a subdivision of uh, the larger Stopgap Foundation charity, which is based out of Toronto. But basically what we do is we get people together and we build ramps for businesses with one step. Um, And since we couldn't do that uh, during COVID, uh, COVID has sort of changed everything. Um, I sort of uh, was noticing a lot more um, talk of, of ODSP online and how COVID was hitting it. So I I put a message out there on Twitter and said, hey, who wants to do something about this? And lo and behold. <laughs> and uh, Jason, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your involvement. I'm one of those stories where they tell you at any moment you can join the disabled community. Um, I spent quite a while having aches and pains throughout my life, but then one day I woke up and my hands no longer worked. And after losing my abilities to work, I was then diagnosed after the fact with an autoimmune disease. So I'm entering the conversation and the situation relatively recently. It's been over the last couple of years. And I'm, uh, I'm faced with applying for ODSP and relying on ODSP and the situations it creates. So I'm kind of a a fresh take on what's currently happening. Um, I'm not currently on ODSP. So in my search for information on it, you hear all the stories and all the 
the stresses and all of that associated associated with it. So I'm one of those people who need to be on it, should be on it, but I'm actually scared to be on it. So that's why I've joined the fight. And I was lucky enough to meet these two and uh, quite a few other people in the ODS poverty group. So I, I'm able to make a difference as a collective with them. So I'm trying to do that. And Jessica, do you want to elaborate a little bit more about uh, ODS poverty group? If I could take a second to introduce, uh, I'm basically where Jay is, but 11 years later, where I was, uh, I was 20 and healthy, and I actually got H1N1 in 2009. Uh, the complications from it actually gave me nerve damage. So I had a condition called gastroparesis, which has become chronic intestinal pseudo-obstruction. Essentially, for everyone worried about COVID and it not being a big deal, it can very quickly become a big deal. And when the pandemic hit, obviously it's taken a toll, especially just being on ODSP. I've been on it for about, I think it's going on nine years now. I had to leave my job because working with my condition actually made me deteriorate faster. But with the pandemic happening and there being no supports given to anyone on ODSP, uh, only promised things and announced hundred dollars that I didn't even know about until it was ending and then the 600 that seems to be in limbo uh, I was just feeling really hopeless and I don't I didn't even normally use Twitter but I started reaching out just trying to find some sort of support or people I could sympathize or talk to about it and I found this wonderful group just through uh, Kenzie's post about hey would you like to do the zoom call and I've met quite a number of really wonderful people through it and for ODS Poverty, we essentially tried to come up with a quick way people could just label it in their stories on Twitter, which ODSP and living below the poverty line, ODS Poverty seemed to be the best way. Uh, we began doing uh, infographics where the group had actually gotten a collection of myths that the general public may have towards people receiving ODSP. And we've been creating these infographics to have the myth, but then also give our response based on our lived experiences, which because we're so varied, we all have our own experiences that we bring to the table with these responses. So while I do the art, it's very much a collaborative thing that we all work on together. Now, Kenzie, uh, in terms of what's been happening in the last uh, number of weeks with ODSP, there have been uh, a lot of comments made on the um, on the CERB uh, on the federal level, where folks are getting you know two thousand dollar checks if they can't work, and uh, we saw some comments that came from Ontario Premier Doug Ford about the fact that folks were getting uh, CERB and um, folks that were talking about and worried about what the ODS, what was going to happen with ODSP and Ontario works that they should just go and get a job and stop collecting federal payments on CERB. And that actually angered a lot of people, including um, Ottawa Centre's MPP, Joel Harden, who had some choice words for the premier. What do you make of the premier's comments and the more general conversation uh, to Jessica's point on the misconceptions of people on ODSP? Yeah, that's, that, those are really good questions. So when when I put everybody together, you know, one of the things, one of the very first things we came up with was this whole idea of what people think people on ODSP get covered. So that's where this whole myths campaign sort of started from. You know, people think, and I actually put it out there. You know, they said, I said, what are some of the myths of ODSP? 
you know, people think that they get everything covered, that they're lazy, that they're getting the serve and ODSP and they're set. Um, they don't actually want to work. They get all their, their rent paid for. They get their phone paid for, bills and all this stuff. And, and we wanted to say like, whoa, <laughs> there is so much misinformation out there. Do you know how miserable it can be to be on ODSP? Um, I, I'm a social worker by, by profession, so I, I deal with uh, people on ODSP a lot, and I help people get on ODSP. Um, and the amount, I mean, that you're living on to, to you know, if, to choose this live-it-up lifestyle um, is like $1,169 a month maximum that you can get. So a lot of people are getting less than that. And a lot of people are living in market rent apartments. So they're not actually getting their rent covered free. Uh, some people are, we did a poll, a little, little poll on, on Twitter not too long ago. And we asked people at the very end of the month, how much do you have left over? Um, and the most people put uh, between zero and 55. $50 is where most people landed. Um, and people are not getting their medications covered. They're having to choose between um, going, taking a taxi to get groceries um, or, or um, paying their, their phone bill or whatever. So people are having to make really hard choices. So, so we put, started putting these myths out together. Um, and um, Jessica luckily was able to actually, we, we realized that we had somebody who could actually draw. So, so we got all really excited and we, we, we started putting these things out there and we got a lot of response back. Um, and we just saw this, this grow. This, this sort of movement and this hostility. And then as we started doing that, then Mr. Ford said his lovely remarks. Um, and if you remember the question he was asked, and it was basically, you know, um, how, how um, what are you, all these people who cannot work, why aren't they getting more. They're saying that ODSP is not enough. Now there's a pandemic, yet all these people are given $2,000, which on CERB, which sort of insinuates that that's the minimum that people need to live on. Whereas people on ODSP are living half below the, 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 um, the poverty line. And Doug Ford did not actually address that question. He chose to point out the very small percentage of people who are actually eligible for CERB and ODSP. Now, if you receive CERB, you're actually going to get that taken off your ODSP. So you will not get money on top of money on top of money, um, as people tend to think. Uh, so, so his comments were very ignorant. His comments did not address the actual question and they made it seem like people were on with disabilities were lazy were um were mooches um and then we came across a video that saw that he had made this same comment two years ago yeah i actually want to ask uh, jason about that uh about that as well uh when you say that the 
comments only addressed what he was asked about the top-ups for, you know, CERB or for ODSP. And let's not forget that rent in Toronto in the GTA for a one bedroom is averaging about 2000 a month. So even if folks on disability were getting both payments, which they're not, they would still have barely anything left over for their monthly expenses. And yet the premier still thinks that comments like that are reflective of what the lived reality is. So tell us a little bit more about that lived reality that you're facing right now. The one main thing that I'd I'd like to kind of point out is there's this comparison. Uh, A lot of people in in the disabled community are asked, why do you hate CERB? We don't. CERB should have actually helped us in the sense that it mandated $2,000 a month minimum to live in Canada. And every single resource out there is drastically below that. Kenzie had had said there's a max to ODSP, which is uh, about $500 less than the rent you just said. So there's, there's some people in serious situations where even though other people are getting brought to this minimum quality of life, there has been nothing to genuinely bring ODSP up to remotely close that. And in fact, uh, during it, there's bills passed by the Ford government changing what we had and taking from what we had. So there's not just what they're, they're not doing funding-wise, it's also they're, they're taking at the same time and making it more restrictive. So the, the access to stuff we do have is, is starting to go down as the cost of living is going up. And that's another thing is we talk a lot, we focus on, on the rent. The, the other costs associated with having a disability are what normally add up to the drastic change in how we can survive because that's transportation to and from, that's groceries. Many of us have to have it delivered. Just because of COVID, these things existed beforehand. The neglect, it was neglect before, but now it's pure abandonment. And they're not doing anything to bring our situations up during the pandemic to match the needs that we have. It wasn't there before, but it's still the same as pre-pandemic when it was a neglected system as it is now. So as rents and costs go up, ours is either staying the same or less services, I'll say, available, less coverages available. And not only is the coverage and the type of payments that are being um, paid out uh, inadequate, they're also temporary. As we all know, CERB got extended, I believe, as of last week until the end of September, but there's no real plan in place other than pushing it into a quote-unquote form of EI at the end of September to extend any benefits to anyone beyond that. And we all know, and folks that listen to the show will know, those benefits don't extend to people with disabilities at all. They don't qualify for employment insurance. So what are they going to be left to do in cases like this? Um, I'll put this question out to anyone who that, that wants to answer that. I, I actually didn't answer your question, and I'm sorry. I want to answer that, and then someone else can, can answer your current question. Sure, go ahead. 
for its comments are constantly we're helping everyone we're helping every ontarian we're doing everything we can ontario strong while continuously excluding the disabled community there is a massive push from him to get this image of helping everybody but every single disabled ontarian or ontarian with disabilities is getting the message that we're even less than human so to answer your question about his comments they're ableist they're get a job get off odsp if they're healthy enough get off odsp but you, you can't be healthy and on odsp it's it's a misnomer or oxymoron however you want to say it it actually really upset me because about in throughout the month of july i had actually been emailing ford's office before i met the group just explaining my situation as someone who can't work and just asking even if he empathized with us even if he's considered advocating for some sort of serb match to odsp while there's a global pandemic going on and the first response he basically told me to to apply to CERB, which I had clearly stated I can't. The second email, he redirected me to someone from the Ministry of Social Services who let me know about this emergency $100 that was being canceled, so it was too late anyway. And then to see that press conference and him just assume that everyone on ODSP should just go get a job, it was a slap in the face after having spent a month trying to reach him just privately not even on camera and it just seems like it's a pattern with him from the 2018 comment from trying to limit what a disability is from additional clawbacks not only to us but the people we're living with it's a history of this kind of behavior i think it makes a bigger issue of Canadians at home, whether they're, dis they're disabled or not, we're sitting by our phones waiting for updates to know what's going to happen in our lives. How are we going to help our kids? Our, how are we going to live? And I think it's an issue that people with disabilities and people who don't, we can all empathize with that together. So why is it so hard to understand that people with disabilities would not only be impacted, but we should be included in the conversation from the start. Like when I see there's going to be sick days for people, and when I see there's going to be a caregiver benefit, that makes me happy. But it does hurt to see they couldn't even squeeze us under the caregiver benefit of, well, what if you're, you're working and you have someone at home who's disabled and they get COVID? What about the people who don't have any benefits to their job to stay home and help them? And then those people are exposed to it as well. I just don't understand why we're always last to the table like we're a second thought kenzie do you have any uh, additional thoughts you want to put forward about this well yeah it, it's interesting to me because when we um we were sort of on twitter and when we're trying to figure out you know the best way to to get attention to this matter as possible and you know, I, I do the, the social media for Stopgap Ottawa, but I'm not a social media expert and I don't always really know what I'm doing. I'm just trying to, you know, play it by ear. And you do good. What? You do good. <laughs> Thank you. But um, um, one thing uh, that we noticed, so we were, we were tweeting at people trying to get their attention, trying to get a news story out of this, trying to get media to say like, whoa, you know, um, and we, we started to do that around Ford's comments. Um, 
And I was actually like, um, we were sort of saying, you know, his comments are ableist. And that is not a word you see very often. You know, racism is a very big thing right now. Um, sexism has always been a big thing. Um, but ableism isn't in there. And it's still that the sort of discrimination that's, that's allowed. That's not well, really taken all that seriously. Ableist, the word ableism is actually under the Ontario Human Rights Code for it disabled is. people. We're it actually is. supposed to be a protected class. And you'd yeah. think Ford would realize that considering he's our premier. Right. Right. But when we approached, so it was um, Jay who wrote a letter to CBC um, basically saying like, what's going on? His, his comments were ableist and why isn't this all over the news? And the response was basically, well, we don't see much of an uproar. Um, and really, really were they ableist? Was his comments ableist? Were they really? The, the main message in that reply, cause it was a official complaint through the ombudsman of CBC. The reply was, not only that they didn't see outcry when I asked them to clarify because there was outcry by um, the entire disabled community, they had said that the disabled community wasn't enough. It had to be um, momentum for the movement outside of the disabled community for the comment or for the outcry to matter. So that's a lot like, like saying, well, disabled people don't get to complain about discrimination other people have to do it for them and we can't exactly go hold a protest when most of us are immune compromised and in a pandemic yeah it's almost like you know what you're in poverty you're disabled you have no say we're not giving you an avenue now they there has been like you and other uh outlets have started engaging us mm -hmm. which is amazing because the first fight we actually had was getting it recognized as an issue. I would change that and say, I think you did engage us and there have been some, but also we've been engaging them. We've, we've sort of changed our, our, um, MO really, or we have to advocate for ourselves. Before yeah. And, and others so, well. you know, just not randomly like you um, tagging all these people we actually reached out to people like one-on-one -on -one, and we found that that has worked you know we've, we've reached out to two different reporters and they both are one has done a story and one is doing a story um so you know we sort of learn as we go but but it, it's really frustrating and it takes a lot of energy and the thing too is you know Many people in the disabled community don't have the energy to fight. They don't have the resources. They don't have the health to do that. So if you're not covering something because you don't see enough of an uproar from a community that can't uproar in the same way, that in itself is it enableist. And another thing about, about CERB and EI and that in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, it says that disabled Canadians must have equal access to the same support and protection. And that's in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So 
our our fight is to get recognition for the issue but then the next fight is to get change and to get support and to get recognition of this is supposed to be a, a a human right but we have to fight for the recognition of it being an actual issue it's so socially acceptable that accommodating disabilities is not a priority it's not something that needs to be important what we have to fight for is still just recognition that hey that's not okay hey we're not given access to the same support and protection because we we have to get the media recognition we have to get the understanding of the actual issue because it's so normal to have someone with a disability not have access to something and it's just it is what it is and the canadians watching on the outside especially with covid going around nobody knows who's going to become part of this community it's it's easy to look on the outside and say well you guys are getting enough you shouldn't complain but the second it happens to someone outside it's going to look very different what did you lose is a, a fun question to be asked you didn't lose your income no we we've been this low and this poverty stricken since before and cerb yes it's an income replacement but in absolute truth it is to protect people from getting a virus that causes a disease which may either end your life or severely impact your life they're being given a support to help protect them from potentially become becoming disabled which once again h1n1 that was exactly my situation so they they label it income supplement but it's actually when you get rid of the fancy titles it's giving people protection from a potential either death or severe long-term repercussions but the people who have those issues and those concerns and those threats before who cares nothing for you uh, any final thoughts on what you want to see from the Ontario and federal governments with respect to how this is being handled and what, um, what if anything, do you want to hear from the pre- Premier? Because Joel Harden has asked him for an official apology, and so far we haven't heard anything from him. So we're not going to get an apology from, from Doug Ford, and I think we're wasting our time. And quite honestly... An apology from Doug Ford doesn't mean anything to me. It doesn't. Um, he need we need action. We need to see action. We need to get something changed. We need to to get ODSP revamped. We need to get people out of this dire poverty that they're in, and we need to allow people enough of money. Uh, enough of an income to actually live, not glamorously. I understand that, but but to live. Um, and when that happens, I might not never forgive those remarks, but I might be able to move on. Uh, for me, a lot of the the talk is focused on what's most important, which is the the financial aspect of it. But there's also, you just did a podcast on mental health. And the mental health aspect of ODSP is so, it, it proves mental health danger because of how it, 
it's structured that you need permission. You get told what you can and cannot do. You live in fear of being taken off the system. The person on the end of the phone doesn't have, most likely doesn't have lived experience. Their, their target isn't helping. It's helping as little as possible, if possible. It, it's constant fear. It's genuinely an abusive relationship between the disabled people and the program itself. And the mental health has declined so drastically, especially every time Doug Ford is saying we're helping everyone Ontario strong and all that type of stuff. Every time people on ODSP hear that, they are realizing even more how we're viewed. So the the program that's supposed to help us leaves us in poverty. That's why the, the hashtag we go behind is ODS poverty. It, it's not just the money. There's It needs a complete revamp. It needs to be a program of actual support. The way it is right now, it causes more mental health issues than it alleviates. It causes more harm than it helps. It puts people and into... We don't have access to mental health supports under it. That Yes, so... They've been talking a lot about um, mental health uh, awareness right now. Uh, today, I saw uh, Doug Ford tweeting about mental health, but he is directly contributing to a massive amount of mental health problems within a large group. And I, I think it's not just the financial aspect, because if, yes, you can have access to the money to live, but then you're still in that abusive relationship and it's toxic. So the support needs to become a support program. It, it can't remain the same, just raise up the funds because yeah. it's still causing more harm than it helps. I would say what I would really like provincially and federally is I want people in charge who claim they care about Canadians to really talk about raising ODSP to match the 2000 CERB. That was something that our prime minister said, we need a minimum, a, one adult needs a minimum of $2,000. That's not including medical expenses, medications, grocery delivery. It shouldn't be so hard to figure out that those of us in need are struggling and we don't have those supports. Regarding Ford's apology, it's been something I've been advocating for, but realistically, it is true. What What would it mean? Like, he wouldn't he wouldn't mean it like if he actually felt it he would have apologized the second it was called out by joel harden who like thank gosh for him for doing that because not many people did so i'm really glad you're going to be speaking with him and we extend our greatest appreciation for that i just wanted ford to answer the question why did he cancel the 100 you know if he doesn't believe in serb if he does because he clearly doesn't believe in serb based on that tangent he took but if he doesn't want disabled Canadians to have enough to live, was $100 a month for the few that knew about it really hurting him so much when he's doing loans to OLG that he's now clutching his pearls because, oh, they're getting bonuses? It's, it's offensive. So I would like provincially for that to be looked at, the $100 at least, and I just hope federally... With these programs they keep working on, I just want to be considered. Like, we are living human beings who are already struggling. 
it's like we're being punished for surviving and that's not fair when they're willing to help everybody else we don't want to take from other people obviously we just want some help extended our way too Stopgap Ottawa is a local community project of the Stopgap Foundation, which aims to create a world where every person can access every space. You can find them on Twitter at Stopgap Ottawa. You can also find them on their website, stopgapottawa.ca. I want to thank all three of you, Kenzie, Jay, and Jessica, for joining me on the show today. And uh, stay safe, and I hope you guys have a great weekend. Have a good night. Have a good week. Bye. Bye. Coming up, I speak with Sophie Jeffros, about the ODSP and the Ontario government's lack of funding throughout the pandemic. And later in the show, I speak with Leah Gazan about Motion 46 and the need for a guaranteed livable basic income in Canada. Joining me now on the show is the co-chair of the Ontario Young New Democrats and a PhD candidate at McMaster University, Sophie Jeffros. Sophie, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So I want to start by asking you quickly about uh, some of your um, political and activism history. How did you get involved in politics and uh, why did you choose to get involved with the Ontario New Democrats? Um, well, I'm from Hamilton, Ontario, which is a really, really strong labor town and a really deep orange town as well. Um, my parents are trade unionists, uh, you know, have done labor stuff my entire life. I grew up going to union meetings and things. Um, and in Hamilton in particular, I mean, in Canada generally, but in Hamilton in particular, labor and the NDP have a very, very close relationship. So it was never, I was always interested in politics, and it was never really a question how I, where I would engage electorally. I often joke the one thing I could have done to disappoint my mom would have been to join the Liberal Party. Um, so, yeah, and so I just sort of started volunteering on campaigns, uh, even when I was in high school. And then in university, I, was, I worked on the 2014 provincial campaign and the 2015 federal. Um, and through that, ended up getting more involved with the NDP, sort of joined the Writing Association, and ended up doing a lot of stuff with Andy which I like to refer to as, you know, the army of socialist teens. Uh, and I've done Andy stuff now for about four years. I'm just about to age out of the, the youth New Democrats now, so I'll have to just be a regular old New Democrat, I suppose. But yeah, and, and so it's been it's a really good experience, a lot of really positive training, and a lot of really great ways to connect with young people across Ontario and sort of talk about, like, you know, things that actually matter. So... I really like it. It's a, it's a good way to get involved in electoral politics, IMO. Now, speaking about things that matter to young people, and especially in Ontario and uh, across Canada right now, we have students going back to school next month, and the Ontario and Alberta governments in particular have been criticized for their plans to put students back in the classrooms, particularly for the fact that school class sizes are at their largest averages in decades. And with some classes going over 30 to 35 students, I know British Columbia is facing some of their own criticisms as well. What are you hearing from you know, folks that are going back to school and uh, folks that have kids or have siblings that are going back to school? I mean, I think 
everyone is very concerned, right? The Ford government is not one, I can only speak to Ontario here really, but the Ford government is not one that has really particularly cared, honestly, about education at any level, has made some absolutely horrendous decisions. And we're also working with a system that was already, you know, gutted by previous governments, right? Like it's not as though, I think oftentimes people like to talk as though Ford came in and made everything bad. He made many things worse, but he, there, you know, when I was in school, uh, my classes were often between 30 and 35 students, you know, and that's the, the real concern to me in particular is that what they have just announced today in Ontario is that uh, they're not actually providing any more government from the provincial side to reduce class sizes or anything like that. They've said that school boards should dip into their rainy day funds. Many don't have those. And I know in Hamilton, that fund is almost always completely depleted because it's used to pay for emergency repairs to schools. You know, the, it, and, you know the, the thing that the Ford government did, one of the first things they did with education in Ontario was actually uh, slash the fund that was supposed to pay for infrastructure upgrades. So when we're talking about a respiratory pandemic, one that is spread by a droplet, one that, you know, needs poorly ventilated areas to really get, sink its teeth into you, that's terrifying. And, you know, it's equally terrifying. You know, I have this interesting situation where I have, you know, friends with siblings who are still in school. I have members who are in high school still. And I also have friends who are like recently graduated teachers. And everyone's terrified because it doesn't feel like there is a real plan. It feels like they're just kind of crossing their fingers and hoping. You know, Doug said uh, that he prays to God every night that schools will reopen safely. And I feel like that's not God's division, you know? I feel like that's maybe the premier's job. So it's a, it's a difficult and very anxious time, I would say, for everyone involved in the sort of school system. And we've already seen in the last couple of weeks, in fact, the premier was asked about this less than three days ago, about the fact that Schools in the U.S. have started reopening, and we've already seen more than, I believe it was, 90,000 cases of COVID-19 in those schools. And when he was asked about it, he basically just said, everyone wants our plan. Well, I don't think that that's necessarily true. I know that when it comes to provinces like Saskatchewan and Manitoba, which are both obviously uh, currently being governed by conservatives in those provinces asked for that plan because then they could just effectively copy and paste and put it out to their own supporters and their own constituents and say, we've come up with this great plan. Here it is. But all they're effectively doing is just copying the script that Ontario has done. That's all that Doug Ford is saying there. So when, when he talks about everyone wanting their plan, he seems to fail to realize that people that are criticizing the plan are the ones who actually have to deal with students, with teachers, with the general public. People that are asking for this plan are members of his own team. So he's not really factoring in what everyone else is telling him, including his own experts. So we're looking at a possible Petri dish here of a problem that is only going to get worse the longer this goes on. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, he recently was asked, you know, who did you actually consult? And he claimed that he had consulted like unions and things. And then he released the list of the people. There's not a single union list listed there. He has not consulted with ETFO. He has not consulted with OSSDF. That's our elementary and secondary school teachers unions, respectively. 
um, he one of the things he listed was uh, OU, OUAC, which is the Ontario University Application Center, which is the website you use to apply to college and university. I'm not sure how they're going to help. Uh, and yeah, it's terrifying, right? It's as though he literally said maybe a few days ago that if it was up to him, he would have smaller class sizes. Well, I have five really students in a classroom. That's exactly what he said. If it were up to me, I'd have five students in a classroom. I wish I could do something about it. Well, you're the premier. You're the person, you're the person who can do something about it. So you better do something. Exactly. Yeah, I have excellent news for you, actually. You, this is your job. You can do this. This is literally all on you. But, of course, he doesn't actually want to do anything, right? He wants to say that he's doing things. He wants to say he's following um, the Sick Kids, which is the Children's Hospital in Toronto, released a pretty large document about what would have to be done to open schools safely. And even that document was, like, the subject of some pretty robust criticism within the kind of epidemiological community for being a little bit too liberal is the wrong word, but a little bit less conservative than some health experts would like. Uh, but sick kids come out and said, no, they're not using our plan. Our plan explicitly calls for smaller class sizes, like maximum 15 students for physical distancing. You know, I went to a very poorly funded elementary school and it had E. coli in the water the entire time I was there. There was very rarely soap. There were upwards of 30 kids in every room. And you're telling me that school, which is still open, is going to be able to manage COVID? It's, it's a pipe dream, right? It's, it's, not, it's not real. And unfortunately, people are going to get hurt. And it's awful to watch, like a slow-moving car crash, you know? And I'm glad that you brought up the 15 students per classroom recommendation because it was back in June. It was revealed, actually, on social media, I think, yesterday or today. And he actually put out this clip. Stephen Lecce, the education minister, said back in June that they were going to recommend class sizes of no more than 15 students. So where's that recommendation now? What happened to that? Yeah, no, it's, it's absurd. What they've actually done is they've, they've chunked Ontario schools into two separate categories. The first, which has slightly higher restrictions, the second, which has lower, but it in neither case is there an actual maximum of 15 students. If you are a Division One elementary school, which are the Toronto schools, um, I think possibly Peel, uh, but it's important to note those divisions were made based on where they perceived the highest levels of outbreaks being, but the outbreaks in Ontario have moved. You know, it's no longer completely centralized within the GTA. You know, Windsor-Essex has had a huge outbreak, mostly due to, you know, um, their unforgivable exploitation of migrant workers. Uh, there have been outbreaks in the North, and... These are all places where those schools will be put into Division Two, where school is just happening as normal. If you are a Division Two elementary school, school is just as exactly as it, used, as it always has been. There's not even any real restrictions there. So that's a little bit terrifying as well, you know? Now, one of the other things that has been going on in the last couple of months is the benefits that have come from CERB and from CESB um, for many people are set to expire. And... Mm -hmm. We're looking at a lot of people that are going to be facing evictions in the next uh, 60 days. I know it's already begun in Ontario, and it's going to be starting September 1st in British Columbia as well. And part of the reason why people are so worried is because when those payments dry up, people don't have jobs to go back to, and they already owe nearly four months of rent to, to landlords who 
are already taking advantage of the fact that the ban on evictions has been lifted in Ontario and it's going to be done in BC as well. These people are going to have nowhere to go. And when we're talking about uh, in the middle of a pandemic where kids are going back to school on top of people being kicked out of their homes, you know, we're looking at a potential of, you know, cross infection between students, teachers, people who are homeless and people who are otherwise already vulnerable populations. We already are seeing this, you know, uh, with data that has been put out in Ontario and more specifically in the Toronto area where marginalized and racialized communities are disproportionately affected by the pandemic. So we have a real problem here and it looks like, or it seems like, politicians across the board really don't understand or have a really good handle on the situation. Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I think that, you know, it's always very instructive to think about who do people make policy for, right? And I think in general, politicians make policy for people that they know. And that's a reductive way of saying it, of course, but the reality is we, I'm not convinced we have any MPs who are renters. If we do, I, they're you know, fewer than you can count on one hand, almost certain, right? Similarly with MPPs, there might be a slightly higher proportion of them in Ontario, but still fewer than you can count on one hand. And honestly, if you were elected as a renter, you draw a pretty good salary as an MPP. You may have then transitioned to being you know, a homeowner of some kind. And so it's almost, that has never really seemed to be a consideration, especially when you think about you know, this, this end in the eviction moratorium. And when you look at what actually was provided in the, the CERB and the CESB, well, it was $2,000 a person if you were on the CERB. It was 1275 if you were on the CESB and not disabled and didn't have any dependents. Well, I live in Hamilton. We are in a massive housing crisis. It's you know, much worse within Toronto and the GTA. The, if you were to pay your rent and you were drawing the CERB, you likely would have no money left over or, or a really negligible amount. So, of course, people couldn't pay their rent. And of course, you know, landlords are, that are now asking for four months rent up front. Like, that's, that's absurd. That was never going to work. And it's, it's this absolutely terrifying thing where it feels like they gave, they gave us just enough to sort of keep us going for a few months. And then they kind of decided they didn't want to anymore. And that this seemed boring and lame. And now they're worried about deficits again. So they're just throwing people to the wolves. And it's, it is absolutely terrifying. The cross-contamination risk between you know, shelters and, and congregate residences, you know, and schools. You mentioned that, you know, marginalized people and racialized folks have been disproportionately affected. Yes, absolutely. And again, you're, one of the things that that was actually caused by, in addition to sort of other factors, including, you know, who works essential jobs, uh, were that, especially in the Toronto area, racialized and low-income families are likely to live in uh, insufficiently housed, right, with far too many people to one home, making it impossible to isolate or socially distance, Meaning that if someone brings home, you know, the coronavirus, suddenly it's spread not just to that person, but to their children, to their parents, to their in-laws. And it's just a ticking time bomb. It's, you know, it's a scary time to be alive, I would, I would say. Now, for your own situation, uh, I know that on, uh, on social media, you've uh, actually been engaged in a few back and forths with uh, several people about, you know, your situation and how you know, you're affected um, both as a student and as someone who's disabled yourself. Tell us a little bit about your experience dealing with this crisis yourself so far and what challenges you've come up against. Yeah, so, you know, I am, I am disabled. I'm also chronically ill. I'm immunocompromised. So obviously a, a pandemic that specifically kills the immunocompromised is going to 
slightly terrifying time for me. Um, I'm, as you mentioned, I'm a graduate student, which means that I am employed during the school year, but also it means I am absolutely not employed uh, for four months of the year, and that during the school year, I make enough to pay my tuition, essentially. Uh, it's a nice circular revenue stream from the school to me and back to the school. Uh, and I was lucky enough to get the student benefit, and because I'm disabled, I got the full 2000 which is the same as people on the CERB. But my rent is $1,095 a month. Um, so half of that is gone to my rent already. Then when you add bills and all these things, I have been living on, you know, $200, $250 a month. It's not great. It's been extremely stressful. Um, especially, you know, things like my internet bills are much higher now, obviously. My electricity bills, you know, one of the things that has been said about uh, people on ODSP, who are a really important population who don't get talked about enough. That's um, the Ontario Disability Support Program. It's social assistance for disabilities who can't work. Uh, they were cut completely frozen out of literally all benefits, except for a once a month, one time, $100 top-up from the government that you had to ask for specifically. Was that, well, these people, you know, they didn't lose work. They already weren't working. Sure, but you have to consider that your living expenses have gone up. The cost of food and staples have gone up quite dramatically. Uh, that your utility bills have gone up, all of these things means that you're dealing with much, much higher levels of sort of general living expenses. And it's put a lot of people in really terrible situations. Um, and, you know, the other thing that I find slightly interesting about the CERB is that they essentially, they've decided that $2,000 is roughly what you need to live per month in Canada, which I would say varies significantly based on geography, quite frankly, that may well be all you need to survive if you live in PEI. Uh, it's not so much if you live in Toronto. But the fact is that social assistance in, Ont in Ontario is half that. That's what they decided disabled people need to survive, half of that. Uh, putting them in what is called the deepest poverty, right? Uh, like a level below the low income cutoff. And they've been completely forgotten. And, you know, I have a lot of friends who also didn't manage to get the CESB because they graduated, in one case, two weeks too early. You had to graduate by a specific date in, in um, December. And if you graduated two weeks before that, you're not eligible for the CESB, and you likely didn't earn enough to be eligible for the CERB. So there are huge chunks of the population that have been completely left out. And, you know, I always want to highlight that because as deeply stressful and difficult as it's been for me. I'm very aware that I am in a much better situation compared to a lot of people I know. Um, but it's still, it's been very difficult. Uh, and honestly, I would love to see the sun again, but that's not going to happen for a few months. Sophie Jeffros is an experienced community organizer and writer with a demonstrated history of working in print and visual media. You can find them on Twitter at S Jeffros. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today uh, and stay safe and enjoy the rest of your evening. Thanks, you too. Bye, Chris. Coming up, I speak with Leah Gazan about the possibility of a guaranteed livable basic income in Canada. And joining me now on the show is NDP MP for Winnipeg Centre, Leah Gazan. Leah, thank you so much for being back on the show. Yes, thanks for having me. So today we're talking about the guaranteed living uh, income and your motion 46 in Parliament. Uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, motion about uh, GLBI. 
Well, I mean, uh, we know uh, we could be in the pandemic for another two or three years. And as the pandemic goes on, we see an increasing amount of people uh, that are becoming um, unemployed. Families are struggling. Individuals are struggling. I know uh, in my riding, I'm working with families, uh, a family of five that's now living in a hotel room. Uh, I I was working with a family living in shelter. I've gone to the encampments. Uh, where people are starting to move into encampments because many people in this country are one paycheck away from the streets. Um, And as this pandemic goes on and it becomes more and more difficult for individuals uh, waiting for governments to make announcements, uh, these good news announcements month to month, week after week, while people have to wait for their faith, Fate is not only uh, cruel to people's mental health, but Canadians deserve a stable uh, plan going forward, particularly because we know uh, that uh, this could go on for another two or three years. Um, So it's for those reasons, um, in partnership with movements on the ground, uh, movements such as uh, Basic Income Manitoba, and uh, inspired by Basic Income Canada and folks that have been fighting for a guaranteed livable um, basic uh, income for many years, I decided to put my motion forward. And it's for all Canadians or people residing in Canada over the age of 18, including um, single persons, students, families, persons uh, uh, with disabilities, temporary foreign workers, permanent residents, students, refugee claimants. Uh, We know that the best deterrent Uh, The best way to protect people against COVID-19 is by social distancing and frequent hand washing. That requires people to have a home. And that requires people to have access to water. And those minimum human rights are becoming more and more compromised as the pandemic goes on. And people who were already vulnerable to systems that excluded them prior to the pandemic are even more vulnerable now, which makes it even more imperative to uh, get this bill put forward. Now, I think it's important to add uh, that this bill isn't in replacement of Um, current and existing uh, federal uh, government uh, programs, it would be in addition to, and I say that because if you look at disabled persons, uh, the very little uh, support they get now, the inadequate support they get now from the federal government cannot be taken away. Those, Those programs and supports need to stay. Medicare needs to stay. Um, access to accessible, affordable social housing and social housing programs, those things need to stay. So it's not to be in replacement of, but in in addition to. Now, it would replace things like the totally archaic EI uh, system. Uh, We know during uh, uh, COVID uh, that this government is looking at switching people over to EI. We know that... um, you know, only 40% of people will qualify for those programs. And as we go on, people need assurances that they're going to be okay. This government has failed to do that. And, uh, you know, uh, hopefully we can push this motion forward. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought up the um, distinction between the GLBI and um, employment insurance, as well as the fact that it doesn't replace existing systems already in place. Um, because we've seen criticisms in the past that universal basic income would, you know, uh, disproportionately benefit people that already 
already are well off enough on their own and we'd have problems collecting that back in uh, taxes or in um, clawbacks or whatever measures that the government would need to implement to get that money back from folks that didn't need it. And the other thing that I think is worthy of distinction is that uh, unlike the universal basic uh, income that a lot of other organizations are pushing for, uh, a GLBI would look at uh, Canadians' uh, current status of income and scale it based on what their minimum needs are. So tell us a little bit about uh, some of the more finer details of GLBI and how that would apply. Well, just specific to my motion, it does account for regional differences. For example, it's the cost of living in Vancouver is a lot more than the cost of living uh, in Saskatoon. So it accounts for regional uh, differences. And it's to ensure that all people have a, a, a livable income, like many seniors in this country do not. Somebody like myself who has a li- livable income, uh, I don't need a, a supplement. Uh, but people who don't have that, people who are living on the margins uh, without human rights, uh, unable to live in dignity because they are not afforded with the basic human rights required to live a life of dignity, that is the focus of this motion. And we know as um, unemployment uh, program or unemployment rates uh, increase that there are many people that are experiencing, for example, homelessness for the first time. This is abhorrent. This is unacceptable, particularly because we have a current government that spends billions of dollars, billions and billions of dollars on corporate welfare, whether it be the fossil fuel industry, giving $50,000 to MasterCard, $12 million to Loblaws. I'm, t- I'm calling for a di- divestment in, from corporate welfare and an investment in people. And to go after ta- uh, offshore tax havens, as we see with Peter uh, Julian's motion uh, for a wealth tax, um, and uh, to have a wealth tax that for the ultra rich, our party has been, you know, calling for going after officer tax havens, getting the money that Canadians are owed, and using that money and in investing uh, in people. Now, when you when it comes to the motion and the more broad issue of a livable basic income. It's a very popular idea amongst Canadians. Uh, at least 70% are in favor of some form of basic income. Why do you think that governments to this point, regardless of what the research has shown, because it's worked in cities uh, like Hamilton, where the Ontario government just, um, just took that program away, even though people were lifted out of poverty, why do governments hesitate to implement programs like this that would actually help people? Well, I think, you know, uh, we see certainly with this uh, current government, uh, you know, they, they are in uh, power to help their buddies. We just saw that with the, with the, wee, the wee scandal. Uh, we've seen that with, uh, you know, the first bailout during COVID went to the fossil fuel industry. Um, you know, governing is about choices. And I think what, one of the things that we've learned during COVID is we actually do have the resources, but we lack the political will. And um, I think more and more Canadians, like you said, 70% of Canadians are saying, we need this now. Um, I think it's a life and death uh, decision that we need to make at this juncture. Uh, I spoke to a woman in, in the enca- an encampment the other day. She said, you know, I work. 
uh, I've paid taxes. I have been on EIA and I did take the CERB because I paid for it and I'm not going to apologize for it. You know, I, I think we need to redirect the conversation and say, why has it been so normalized to give billions and billions of taxpayer dollars to corporate corporate welfare when people are struggling uh, to make ends meet, uh, to keep roofs over their heads, uh, to have food security. We need to change that thinking, particularly now it's a health and safety measure, uh, a critical health and safety measure during the pandemic. And so um, I am choosing to divest from corporate welfare and invest in people. That's my choice. And I know that I have uh, people, uh, members from the Liberal Party who have signed on to my motion, uh, people from the Green Party that have signed on to my motion, the block. Uh, we have, I'm working on getting a Conservative MP and, you know, Conservatives have supported the notion of a guaranteed um, you know, livable basic income, including former Senator Segal. So, um, you know, I, I think it's it's possible. It's certainly something that's been supported across party lines. We just need to put it in place. Now, your motion 46 in the House has nearly 30,000 signatures to this point. What are What is the next step for you in terms of this motion in Parliament and the movement and push for a guaranteed livable basic income? Well, you know, uh, you know, I know that the movement is is growing. Uh, you know, no, it's no uh, secret that I come from uh, the grassroots. Uh, this is very much uh, inspiring the momentum of the campaign. And one of the things that I've often said about movements is that you just have to let them move. And people are moving. Uh, people are writing their MPs right now, um, you know, asking them to support Motion 46. Uh, we're looking at organizing it in um, partnership with frontline uh, advocacy groups, a national day of action. Uh, I know that, um, you know, organizations that tend to stay nonpartisan are signing on because we don't want to see people dying in the cold during winter. I come from the, I represent the third poorest riding uh, in the country, uh, in Winnipeg. Uh, winters are cold here. And, and I think it's critical we put this in place. I don't want to see my neighbors uh, on the streets this winter. And if there was ever a time we could push this forward, now's the time. Leah Gazan is the NDP MP for Winnipeg Centre. You can find her on Twitter at Leah Gazan, and you can find her petition motion for, for Motion 46 on her website, leahgazan.ca. Leah, thank you so much for joining me again on the show and have, been, have, the, have a great rest of your day. Okay, thanks a lot. Take care. Thanks for having yeah, you me. Too. Like what you've heard on the show? Consider becoming a patron and get exclusive access to early content, extras, and more. Visit patreon.com forward slash left behind podcast to subscribe today. Well, that's it for episode six of the LB podcast. I want to thank Leah Gazan, Sophie Jeffros, Jay Stray, Jessica Sweeney, and Kenzie McCurdy for being guests on the show. I also want to give a special shout out to all of our Patreon subscribers for their support, as well as everyone following us on social media and on our website, leftbehindpodcast.com. Until next time, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Bye for now.